welcome to the Masters in Psychology podcast, where psychology students can learn from psychologists, educators, and practitioners to better understand what they do, how they got there, and hear the advice they have for those interested in getting a graduate degree in psychology. I'm your host, Brad Schumacher, and today we welcome Michael Pippich to the show. Michael received his bachelor's degree in psychology from Loyola Marymount University and his master's degree in clinical community psychology from California State University, Fullerton. Michael has been in the field of psychology for more than 30 years. Currently, he is a licensed marriage and family therapist at the Colorado Center for Clinical Excellence. Today, we will learn more about his academic and professional journey and discuss his book and hear his advice for those interested in the field of psychology. Michael, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Brad, for inviting me today. I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk with us. We're looking forward to hearing a little bit more about your history and some of your experience. And you, you've had some uh, interesting experiences as well. But the, to start us off, can you remember when you first became interested in psychology? Actually, yeah, I, I think in, in looking back, it's probably something that I was always interested in, in, in a sense, um, even before I, I knew that, right? Because um, even as a, as, as, as a child, I just always found people fascinating and adults interesting in particular when my parents would have their friends over or whatever, you know, I was just kind of interested in their personalities and their quirks and, the, and how they spoke and interacted and whatever. So, you know, reflecting back, I think it was something that was always kind of maybe a part of my, I don't know, DNA, if you will. But in terms of a field of study, I do recall my older brother, uh, six years older than me, uh, coming home from, from college, and he went to Loyola Marymount as well, which part of the reason why, how I wound up there. But um, he brought uh, his Psych 101 book home over a weekend. Oh. And um, uh, I guess, you know, it was my first uh, uh act of, of academic nerdiness. I spent the weekend looking through his Psych 101 book. I don't know if he did, but I did uh, that weekend. And uh, I just found it all a bit fascinating. I remember like the section on perception and the, the, um, the, the, the images that kind of go back and forth. And, and I was like looking at all this stuff and I'm like, boy, you can really study this. And um, now the next question, how do you make money doing, uh, doing right, something right. Was, was a more involved kind of endeavor to figure out, but, uh, but I really kind of uh, sort of fell in love with it and, and really wanted to pursue it. And uh, prior to that, uh, I was kind of interested in the law and a bit and um, through high school thought maybe I would uh, study history and, and, uh, and then apply for law school. Uh, but uh, uh, when I applied for um, admission to Loyola Marymount, I you know, and got accepted, I declared psychology right away. So that's how that happened. Well, you kind of led me to my next question. And you almost answered it a little bit with your brother going to Loyola. Um, is that the main reason why you went? Or did you look at other um, uh, schools to before deciding to go to Loyola? Tell us a little bit about that process and how you made that decision. Sure. Well, I was I was more familiar with it because of, of, of his uh, attending Loyola and uh, I kind of um, had took an opportunity while I was in high school to take a day from high school and go there and kind of follow him around and um, absorb the college experience. And, and that was a little shocking, <laughs> but uh, I went to a Catholic um, high school. I went to public school K through eight and then a Catholic high school. So I wanted to kind of continue sort of that Catholic education kind of tradition uh, as well. And I grew up in Orange County, California. So I also didn't want to be too far from home, too close or too far. Um, so it, all of those kind of factors kind of came together. Yeah. And so it was all those reasons. And after Loyola, I see that you attended California State uh, University Fullerton for your master's uh, in science. Uh, I, I believe it was clinical and community psychology. Were you considering other schools? And if so, why did you choose CSU Fullerton? Right, so at that uh, time, uh, yes, I did consider other schools, and in fact, other programs too. For a period of time, um, I was uh, considering uh, pursuing a graduate degree in neuropsychology uh, and had some applications for some universities uh, that had that, um, that, had that particular discipline. 
Um, but uh, after just kind of a period of, of discernment and um, some work that I did in community uh, mental health center in Tacoma, Washington, I was a member of the what, what was, is called the Jesuit Volunteer Corps, um, uh, which is a, a lay organization um, and uh, to do volunteer work and live in community. Um, at that time, uh, again, I was working in a community mental health center. So I became more familiar with what it was to do therapy, to, um, to diagnose and, and treat people from that, from that perspective. And so um, I, I began to sort of turn towards that, that uh, specific uh, area of, of psychology. And um, uh, when I investigated Cal State Fullerton's uh, program, it really had the kind of elements that I was interested in, um, sort of weighted towards uh, psychodiagnostic, psychometrics, um, and then various uh, approaches, uh, theoretically, uh, to psychotherapy from the from behavioral side to the analytical side and, and some points in between. Um, so I just felt like it was really a good program. And it was a, it's a small program, it was at that time, uh, which was also uh, uh, an attractive um, element to it. So um, yes, I did look at other programs, but it all kind of came down to what I was needing at that time. And I certainly don't have any regrets. Uh, well, it sounds, like it, it sounds like it was a good fit for you and you were selective in that it had to satisfy your needs and what you were looking at as well. You mentioned that you started doing some therapy and psychoanalytics and a lot of time when I speak to a lot of guests, uh, they recommend, hey, if you're, if you're not sure if you want to go the academic route or the practical side and own your own business or go into therapy, counseling, um, that route, you need to try it and then experience that and you quickly find out if you enjoy it uh, afterwards. Any other thoughts on, um, you know, for people that are considering, hey, should I become a practitioner basically, or should I go the academic route? Any thoughts or uh, advice on how to better figure out which route to go? Well, yeah, I, I, I think there's a couple of things to consider. Certainly, um, uh, there could be overlap as mm -hmm. well. I mean, yeah. I, I spent four years as, in, as a part-time um, instructor at the graduate level too, while I was practicing. Mm -hmm. um, so there's definitely can be overlap, but I understand you're looking maybe perhaps for a primary focus, of course. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things, this is another reason, by the way, that I, I chose Cal State Fullerton um, and some similar programs in California offer um, similar curricula um, geared towards uh, licensure. So mm -hmm. I, I do think that you could uh, conceivably find a program that would help you to become that practitioner to fulfill some uh, of the requirements for licensure in your respective state. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, kind of keep an eye towards research and academics as well. Um, until perhaps that you, you know you kind of sort that out. Ideally, sure, you would want to do that going into a graduate program. Um, but it, but if you're still sort of on the fence, but you know that you want to uh, benefit from whatever uh, a particular program's curriculum may offer you, along with maybe some flexibility in terms of where that can lead you on a career path, that's probably something that you might want to keep in mind as you kind of discern. Which, which school, which program could, could help you um, to have maybe a couple of doors open uh, compared to others that may be more narrowly focused. Good advice and good suggestions. Um, the other thing that a lot of people um, may consider is if you are seeking a program that has any labs available and you can become uh, involved in lab work and, and kind of behind the scenes of uh, what you do uh, in psychology. That's another thing that uh, a lot of our guests uh, recommend as well. When you, you mentioned that you did consider other, other uh, programs and you selected the program that was a right fit for you. In hindsight, however, would you do anything different in terms of that process related to searching for graduate schools and programs? And if so, kind of explain that for us. Well, you know, it, 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 I have to say it kind of turned out well for me. 
Um, and uh, I, I often look back at my years in graduate school and the training uh, in particular, but also the experience of it, um, aside from content, you know, in therapy, we talk about content versus process, right? And content is what a patient may be telling you processes the deeper kind of meaning of that and what that experience is like and so forth. I think similar things can kind of apply to um, graduate school uh, in terms of what you learn, but how you learn it, who you learn it with, what the environment is about, and what you, how you benefit more fully. But uh, so it, I think it worked out pretty well for me. Um, I, I was fortunate to, to, I think, be able to make that decision of uh, between, for example, uh, neuropsychology um, and um, and uh, the more uh, psychotherapeutic approach, if you will. Um, and uh, I, I, I do think, though, that, you know, as I look back, and was, was there anything that else I could do a little bit further? Uh, you know, I one thing that that um, I, I kind of put aside and, and certainly did after my master's program is any consideration of, of a PhD program in clinical psychology. The neuropsychology programs were PhD programs or you know, master's programs that I was familiar with at the time. In neuropsychology, it's really doctoral. Um, but uh, you know, I kind of I wanted to kind of start small and frankly, I just wanted to get to work. <laughs> I don't want to spend too many more years in school. I felt like I had already done a lot. Looking back, I mean, it just feels like a very small, narrow period of time, but at that time, it certainly felt a lot bigger in my life. And so probably would have looked more into doctoral programs um, rather than just kind of going right to the, to the master's program. That's probably something I would have wanted to do more of an active comparison. Uh, but again, it, it, for everything else in my life, it turned out just fine. Sure, sure. No, good advice. Um... I'm curious, how did you decide on focusing on clinical and community psychology for your master's? A lot of people, especially when they're in undergrad, looking for master's or, or going the doctoral route and going into a doctoral program, straight into a doctoral program, have no idea, well, where do I go? What do I do? You know, does it just fall in your lap or you kind of find yourself where you're most interested? Uh, tell us how you decided to focus on those two areas. Yeah, I, I think there's a little bit of fall into your lap. I think I think we all have to in life kind of be open to um, things that, you know, surprises that we couldn't possibly plan on. Uh, plan on the unexpected is, is probably a good way to, to, to think a little bit about some of how things kind of present themselves to you that you may not otherwise expect. But I think specifically to your question about why clinical as opposed to a counseling psychology degree, sure. for example. Um, and I have nothing against anybody else's program or for that matter of social work or whatever you get your master's in that kind of leads you to a similar um, uh, career path. But, but for me, um, I've always put a lot of emphasis on the importance of diagnostics. Mm -hmm. And uh, in this particular program, though it was master's level, uh, we learned quite a bit about psychometrics, uh, testing, and and uh, differential diagnosis, and other um, I think very important ideas, concepts, and techniques uh, in order to better conceptualize individuals um, as they would enter that uh, the psychotherapy um, treatment experience, um, and, and and so. Um, becoming more familiar with the DSM. I forget, I think it was three at the time. <laughs> Maybe two, two and a half. I don't know. Right. right. It was back in them days. Um, but, uh, but again, I always thought it was really important to really understand how best to conceptualize that individual clinically as you kind of develop a more dynamic or personal or individual understanding of that person's life story. And again, I, I really thought that the classes, particularly in the first year of that two-year program, uh, really helped me to do that. 
And I'll, I was getting back to that. I had one final question about CS uh, Cal State Fullerton. What were some of your fondest memories now that you look back? At the time, you were probably so focused. And then in hindsight, you can probably say, oh, boy, I really enjoyed A, B, or C. You know, what were some of your fondest memories? Um, really the people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the first, I, I can tell you, thinking, thinking a little bit back on that first day of graduate school, it was... Uh, here I, I thought I would be all professional. I kind of dressed up a little bit. Uh, eventually, torn jeans were, you know, more appropriate. But you know, you want to make a good first impression. Graduate school and uh, show up uh, to Cal State Fullerton, not realizing I needed more time because the first day of school, everybody shows up. So I had to park several blocks away, and I think it was 110 degrees that day in Fullerton. Oh. <laughs> September is the hottest month, I think, in Southern California. So I had to walk to class. I got there pretty, uh, not making a very good impression. Um, and then uh, being late and so forth. Uh, and then sitting down and getting to know my uh, 12 other classmates and sure. professor. And uh, the next interesting part of that first day was the syllabus got passed out. And, and there was... Uh, kind of like groaning and laughter all at the same time among the 13 of us that got the syllabus. And, and one of my classmates next to me just said, how the hell are we supposed to do this? You know, it's like, <laughs> possible. As one class, uh, we had others to come. And, uh, you know, how is that a fond memory? Well, it's, it's a fond memory because we did do it. Mm-hmm. Um, we did accomplish. And I think it's one of the great experiences of graduate school for anybody who goes through any kind of graduate program, right? That it, it, it feels so impossible and it feels so big. And it is big when you're in the middle of it and you start it for sure. Like, how am I going to do this? This is impossible or it feels so big and, 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 and uh, undoable. But with the support of, of really good faculty and, and certain ones I uh, kind of um, has to you know mentor a little bit, and I think they mentored all of us one way or another. Their availability, the availability of my classmates that we could support and work together, um, really made such uh, a huge difference. And when you come to that graduation, it's just so meaningful and so powerful. And you take that with you because here I'm. I'm uh, I graduated. I was 25, and so it was uh, not just uh, you know a training, very intensive training, but it, an experience of growth. Um, that, uh, you know, helped shape my life. You mentioned uh, faculty. Did you want to call out anybody as very influential or um, who played a, a, a major role in your development uh, as when you went through the master's uh, program? Well, the, I, I think all the faculty, uh, I think it, anybody's experience, you know, there's certain professors or teachers that you kind of mm-hmm. connect with better than others. I mean, that's just, that's how it goes. And, and that's all well and good. Um, you know, it, it's been so long and, and I have not reconnected uh, mm-hmm. with, with members of the faculty or for that matter, my classmates. I've every, I think way back when I kind of did a Facebook search for some of these folks to see where they were at and so forth. Uh, but uh, Dr. Pamela Scavio was, uh, I think, a, a, a one individual that was very influential, I think, for all of us, really. Um, and she was a PhD and an MD. Um, so talk about like me, where I just wanted to go through two years of graduate study and get out and start working. Uh, she was a, a brilliant individual who went through that program, that master's program, as we did years before. So I think that also had um, kind of a, a unique quality that we all sort of gravitated towards that she knew exactly what we had gone through and at the same time had achieved a level that that you know we could to one way or another aspire towards if not sure, sure, all sure. the degrees that she had hanging on her wall uh that she made it through and and uh, through that uh, experience you know was able to build upon it and and i think that in itself was pretty inspiring it sounds like it i i know that i have a, a few people that uh were influential in my uh, uh, undergrad and, and graduate uh, experience as well. Do you recall what you did immediately after graduating with your master's degree? Yeah, um, <clears throat> the first uh, job that I applied for um, 
was to work with a local community college districts program. Uh, they had a, a, a neuropsychology rehab program through the community college district. And um, so my first job was a neuropsychometrist where I, uh, under um, the, um, the supervision of, uh, of one of their neuropsychologists, um, um, administered uh, those neuropsych tests to brain injured individuals who were among other things looking for uh, particular educational opportunities uh, and, and how to tailor um, their, their needs to the, those particular uh, programs. Um, and so I did that for a while and uh, that, was a, that was a great experience, uh, but it was, it was limited to testing mm -hmm. uh, and, and I wanted to do more um, therapy application. And from there, I started working in different um, adolescent treatment programs uh, that were psychiatric and chemical dependency oriented. Um, I think it's an old term now, dual diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, a term I really never liked, but, <laughs> um, but uh, uh, it, it was a great experience working with kids and their families. And, uh, and it helped me, uh, among other things, to uh, work towards that uh, license, which is now LMFT, but at the time MFCC in California, Marriage Family Child Counselor. Um, and I was able to, to work full-time and to obtain my clinical uh, supervised hours towards that license. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because for those of you, uh, the audience members joining for the first time, there's so many acronyms in psychology and LMFT is one of them, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. And as you mentioned, it went by a different acronym before then. And when did you decide that you wanted to go for that licensure and then uh, kind of bring us through those steps? You don't have to give us you know, specifics, but I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm showing my <clears throat> ignorance here, but I believe certain states have different uh, requirements depending on the licensure. And so when uh, you received your LMFT, was it while you were still in California or was it when you went to Colorado? It, it, it was when I was in California. Okay. All right. Um, so uh, it, it really did start in graduate school. The, the program at Cal State Fullerton uh, did provide the classes necessary for the MFCC, now LMFT mm -hmm. license. Mm -hmm. So, so that, that made that decision pretty easy, um, uh, again, as opposed to perhaps uh, furthering the graduate education towards a doctorate, because mm -hmm. it was just kind of teed up that way. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, so I didn't have to really do much beyond those supervised hours. Uh, I, I pretty much have, I thought I had maybe all my classes, uh, maybe I needed to, to take um, a course or two uh, in the community, um, much like we do you know, continuing education, uh, but everything was pretty much set up for me to do that. Um, and so from there, it was about uh, getting supervised hours and just about any facility that I, worked in, and I worked in a couple different ones along the way, um, would have, uh, we, we didn't need an, uh, an LMFT, MFCC necessarily to sign our license. Any licensed clinician, PhD, LCSW, MD, for example, um, could sign those uh, hours. Mm -hmm. so, so you collect those hours uh, to the total of 3,000. Mm -hmm. And it's always good, I learned, to submit more because for some reason, some of them get excluded. I don't know what always why, but um, if that's um, if that's really a thing or just kind of a hoop to jump through, or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, so I had three thousand plus hours that I submitted, um, and then in California where I got the license, it was a written exam, and and then you pass that, it's an oral exam, and at the time I think it was roughly seventy five percent passing on a rate on the written exam and it was under 50%. So I think it might've been 40, 45%, something like that, passing for the first, that's your, on your first time mm -hmm. on the oral exam. Uh, so I was able to pass both of those <clears throat> and then um, receive my coveted license in 1990. Right. So kind of uh, a summary, high level summary for everybody in California, and it may change from, it may be different from state to state, but back when you were going for your licensure, 
you had to have uh, the education, the classes meet those requirements. And then you had to get enough uh, supervised hours where people would sign off on so many hours. And you mentioned about 3000 hours. Mm -hmm. And then you had to go through a, a written test and an oral test. And uh, then after that, then they can confer that license uh, to you. And that license is only good in that state or uh, tell us a little bit more about that. I'm playing devil's advocate here. I know the answer, sure. but I, I want you to kind of go with me for a second for those who are, are interested in getting licensure. Yeah, so um, that's true. The, the, when you obtain a license in any state, the, that license applies to that state. Um, and different states have different rules. Um, and, and certainly since um, COVID and early 2020, I mean, that's a whole topic in, onto itself in terms of telehealth, teletherapy, mm -hmm. Uh, which I've been doing for years before that, but then it, uh, you know, certain states um, through the pandemic had sort of, because of emergency declarations and so forth, may have changed their interstate policies or or just relaxed them for a while so that you could do uh, you could provide services across state lines. Mm -hmm. um, and some of those orders have been rescinded, so now we're kind of scrambling back to see what state you can practice in. Um, uh, using uh, telehealth uh, or not, but but generally speaking, that's, that's certainly true about California. It's true here in Colorado. When I moved here in 2006, or actually actually prior to the actual move, but anticipating the move, um, I was able to obtain a licensure in Colorado as an LMFT using my California license, and um, but. I had to take what, uh, what they call in Colorado the jurisprudence exam for LMFT licensure, which basically means you understand the laws in Colorado. Sure. So I was able to obtain materials online to study for that. And um, at that time, I don't know if they may have changed it or uh, modified it some somewhat, but certainly at that time in 2006, um, my license in California and I think it's true for a lot of states, they kind of look at that uh, license in California as, as a pretty pretty good thing because of everything that you have to do to obtain that licensure. Mm -hmm. It kind of ticks all the boxes, if you will, from needed classes to supervised hours. And then the, the two, not one, but two exams that mm -hmm. you have to pass. So, so it carries a lot of weight too, doesn't it? Um, and so um, with that license, and the exam here in Colorado, uh, which I passed, um, then I was conferred a license here in Colorado. And that's a nice segue to my next question. And you mentioned 2006. So I assume my next question was when and how did you get involved with the Colorado Center for Clinical Excellence? I would guess around 2006. Otherwise, you wouldn't have gone <laughs> for your licensure. And uh, so tell uh, us how you found how you found that opportunity. And while you're doing that, I'm going to go ahead and share my screen and, and show yeah. the Colorado Center website. Oh, okay, excellent. Actually, uh, I've been with the Colorado Center now for three years. So when I came here originally, um, I was in, briefly in a group practice, and then I went out on my own for a solo practice for several years. And that was uh, the time primarily when I was uh, working uh, with uh, well, adults and adolescents with various clinical disorders, but uh, started my uh, emphasis on bipolar disorder and started writing that book. Um, but I came here uh, about three years ago in part because um, I got a little tired of just that solo practice working by myself. And uh, I really wanted to join a group again and, and have the experience of having some excellent colleagues to, to work with, uh, to share um, our resources and ideas together and consultation, but also have fun together and form friendships that, uh, that, are, that are really important and rejuvenating as, as you do the sometimes real difficult work of psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. And so as you can see on the screen, uh, you have two locations. Uh, so the Colorado mm -hmm. Center has one location in Denver and another one in Greenwood Village. And uh, which one do you practice or do you practice at both? Uh, Greenwood Village primarily. Okay. Yeah. Uh -huh. okay. So tell us a little bit more about 
Okay, you, you, you actually started at the Colorado Center for Clinical Excellence, and then you started writing a book around the same time. So that's a good transition to talk a little bit more about your book, which I believe is right here. Yep. <laughs> Down at the bottom of your, uh, I think this is your, um, you know, about uh, page for, for you on the Colorado Center uh, website, and then you have your book down in the bottom right. So tell us why, how did you come up with the idea to write the book? And, and uh, tell us a little bit more about the book. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, actually, again, I've been here at Colorado Center for about three years. Mm-hmm. I started uh, the, the project of, of the book towards actually writing it and getting it published right around 2011, 2012. Okay. Um, and um, so, um, and even a little bit before that, in the sense that I, uh, in my practice, um, started to uh, receive um, referrals from some of the local inpatient psychiatric facilities uh, of young patients, adolescents and young adults with a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. And um, not something I was seeking out to do per se, but uh, they found me, so that's fine. Um, and such is the way of life sometimes where it, uh, you know, serendipity kind of catches up with you. And, um, and so in, in working with these individuals, <clears throat> I, uh, I always felt like I had some familiarity with bipolar disorder or manic depression. It's been called that uh, for a very long time prior to. Um, but uh, it, as I kind of got into working with, and especially with uh, adolescents, and interacting with parents and so forth, you know, I began to kind of see that maybe there is so much more about bipolar disorder than I knew, um, and 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 maybe that sort of lack of understanding, awareness, or whatever is, is somewhat shared through the, the therapeutic community. And I mentioned in my book, owning bipolar, uh, in in the in the uh, sort of introduction or preface. <laughs> which one of those two sections that I think was preface. Um, I had a particular moment with a, with a young person and his mother. And, uh, and uh, just, and I, I talk about that in, in that section of the book, but uh, just really quickly, um, I could see that she was really nervous, uh, mm-hmm. that in spite of the fact that her son had done so well in the program and, and was taking the necessary medications and so forth and following treatment plan, uh, as he as he needed to do, uh, she just felt like she was really behind in the process. That she really didn't understand um, what this condition was all about and what's required, not just in the short term, but potentially for the rest of this person's life. And what to do as a parent, as a loving, caring parent who wasn't in um, necessarily all of the treatment while he was in the hospital. Uh, maybe certainly there parent groups and support groups and things like that, but still not intimately involved with that treatment and, 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 and feeling a little bit left behind um, and kind of looking to me for some guidance on that. And, and so that experience along with others um, along at that time really sort of was a, a wake up call to me to, to really familiarize myself with the available data and, and understand what this disorder is all about, really what the, what the unique features of it. And as I was doing that, I recalled, Brad, uh, early in my training uh, that, and I heard this kind of more or less from different individuals, uh, including uh, people that I, I, I really admire to, to this day would, would say, and I still admire their their clinical acumen and, and their grace in, in professional practice. But I think it was a kind of a conventional wisdom, which I don't think was very wise, that all you needed to do for people with bipolar disorder is get them on medicine. And that, that psychoanalysis, or for that matter, any of the various talk therapies, psychotherapies are not effective. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the truth in that, I think, comes from the fact that from a medical standpoint, dealing with bipolar disorder up until like the 70s and 80s where lithium became really the prominent uh, treatment of choice and still is considered kind of the gold standard of treatment for bipolar disorder um, was, I guess, so revolutionary, if you will, 
that it just sort of supplanted any kind of therapy, including talk therapies, psychotherapies, and so forth. Um, but it always kind of bugged me because one of the things that I always noticed that if, if medicine was so effective, how come people go off of it? Mm-hmm. But bipolar disorder, if it's so good and it helps them to stabilize, which it generally does, um, you know, why would they not want that? So fast forward to that time at about 2011, 2012, I really was interested in that dynamic among others. And so I began to kind of gather data. And, and then also I started a website and a Facebook page at that time and invite people um, to share their stories, which people often do, are free to do it because they know it can help other people. And then you meant uh, right around 2013, I also had a podcast during that period of time that you can still find on my website. I, the shows are still there. Um, and, and I also kind of invited people uh, onto the show to talk about their bipolar experiences. And collecting all of that together, I formulated, oh, there it is. Mm-hmm. Who's that young guy? Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> you had a show that, didn't you? <laughs> well, no, thank you for doing it. Um, so pulling all of that and aggregating all of those experiences and data and so forth, um, I, I started to write the book and alongside of that, developed a, uh, a clinical presentation, which I still do for groups for therapists um, to train uh, for better diagnostics and treatment for bipolar disorder and include a three-phase approach to bipolar therapy, which I think is adaptable to anybody's therapy uh, orientation, um, but really highlights the specific features that people go through in three phases when they go through their bipolar a treatment journey. And, um, and I call the book Owning Bipolar because it's nobody's fault that they have bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. But I think that ultimately uh, it's one's responsibility to try to understand it the best you can and, and collaborate where you can appropriately with your treatment providers and, and hopefully family members too, uh, to understand and to work together to take that responsibility and have uh, a, a, a productive, happy life. I'm sharing my screen once again, and I'm sharing uh, a YouTube video. You have multiple YouTube videos out there, and uh, this one in particular is about owning bipolar disorder with Michael Pipich, LMFT. The name of the book, uh, uh, I didn't even say it yet, is Owning Bipolar, How Patients and Families Can Take Control of Bipolar Disorder. It's by Citadel Press 2018. So if you're more interested in in the book, go ahead and search that. You can also see more of your YouTube videos. And this one, like I said, is mostly focused on this. You also have an intro video just kind of introducing yourself. I think this is kind of put together, I assume, for some of your clients or potential clients coming to uh, uh, get to know you a little bit more. You also have another one here in 2018, about the same time that you went uh, uh, um, uh, and, and got the book published, how patients and families can take control of bipolar disorder. And then it shows that website, owningbipolar.com. And so, like you said, I had to bring this up because uh, uh, it, it, it's kind of nice to see some of the podcasts and fellow podcasters. And a lot of this was uh, geared toward helping those who are struggling with that bipolar. And as you said, you had a lot of uh, guests come on and, and talk and share their stories uh, with you on that podcast as well. So I wanted to share that with, with everybody in the audience. So any, any other future plans for other books or any other things that you're working on? Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of go next after this into your collaboration with uh, uh, the American Psychiatric Association to perform some clinical trials. And you mentioned the DSM-3 back then. And I, my mother, for those of you who've been following the podcast, my mom is a licensed psychologist. And I remember seeing that big, thick book. And I think it was a DSM-1 or DSM-2 at the time. So it's come a long way. But uh, any other projects that you're working on uh, right now? Well, over the years, too, I uh, worked with uh, injured workers um, uh, who have uh, workers' compensation claims. So um, I'm, I'm, con- I'm also kind of focusing on that uh, particular aspect. Um, uh, another, uh, I think, community that's uh, 
underserved, frankly. Um, but perhaps you can say that generally about mental health. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, but I, I certainly like to focus on their sort of unique uh, aspects of one day working and being productive and then getting hurt and having their life change uh, in a moment. Um, so that's uh, that, that's another uh, feature of work that we do here at the Colorado Center. Uh, as far as bipolar disorder, that's an ongoing thing. I've, I've written several, I think, close to or over 30 articles that have been published in different places uh, on specific aspects of bipolar disorder uh, and treatment. Um, and uh, so I'm, I'm certainly going to continue that project. And there's, uh, there's some of them there on the website. Yep. So for those of you who are listening, as opposed to viewing, I'm, I'm sharing his media page. And uh, he has some recent articles, recent interviews, and then other archive shows and articles on this uh, uh, website as well. He also has his about page with the Colorado Center as well. And so you can search for that. And he has some similar uh, web articles and, and professional articles and interviews there. And then the final page is, of course, your website, michaelpipich.com, and here's your bio. And it uh, talks about the treatment areas that you've focused on uh, in, the, in the past and continue to focus on now, your associations, and then some of your own uh, statements about how you conduct therapy, what's important to you. Uh, and uh, so I wanted to share that with the audience because it does give a lot of overview of, of what you are doing your media, and then, uh, of course, focusing on Bipolar Network and, and the book uh, a little bit more and a way to contact you as well. So wanted to share that with everybody. The one that I mentioned earlier is the DSM-5. So I, I read somewhere that you were selected as a collaborator uh, to investigate uh, some I think you were performing clinical trials for the fifth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, otherwise known as DSM, and it's in its fifth edition, so that's why it's DSM-5. So tell me a little bit more about this. Right. So a um, few years before the publication of the fifth edition, uh, the APA uh, was uh, uh, reaching out to uh, quite a number of, of individuals. Uh, somehow we found each other um, and um, asked if I wanted to participate. Um, and uh, uh, I certainly had to supply them with, you know, my CV and, and so forth to kind of get final approval. Um, and fortunately I did in, in, in a volunteer capacity. And uh, it, was, uh, it was a really great experience. Um, what they were looking for uh, was clinical practitioners like myself who um, uh, would interact with patients who obviously consented and they had all the consents necessary to do what we were doing um, and agreed to be a part of, of basically these field trials. And um, in this case, this was specific to mood disorders. And so I had some patients who had uh, diagnosed mood disorders uh, agree to participate and between what uh, I did, some of the work online, they did some of the work online to kind of compare an initial diagnosis like major depressive disorder, single episode, something like that. And, and then what kind of treatment were you applying? And then at some uh, points along the way, did the diagnosis, the treatment kind of match in terms of you know, targeting symptoms? And, and how were you progressing? You know, was there symptom reduction or did other symptoms kind of pop up, that sort of thing. And between what I kind of collected as data and some of the things that uh, the patients themselves would enter so you can get their sort of subjective experience. So it wasn't all just coming from me, right? Uh, in terms of my observations, but also did that align with their own subjective experiences uh, provided certain uh, data points that the, that uh, the APA integrated. And if you actually go to the DSM back, uh, you'll, you'll see my name, but obviously many, many other people you know, <laughs> who were um, also involved. Uh, I was one of many, but, um, but you know, very uh, honored to have been a part of that process. So I almost forgot to ask you, because you're a practitioner, if you were in therapy, could you describe your ideal therapist? Um, I think it starts with um, the ability to listen 
and strive for understanding, uh, which I think is, is key to just any successful relationship, but it's really important in therapy. I certainly appreciate, as I certainly hope my patients do, um, the, the inquiry, the sort of the initial evaluation um, piece to really understand uh, what, what may be going on from a clinical standpoint, but also, again, from that real personal standpoint, you know, what, what, what is it about um, an individual that makes them unique and their story unique to them and what's important to them? And, and certainly that's what I've experienced as a therapy patient um, is um, my sense of ideal therapist is somebody who is really interested in what I'm interested in that mm -hmm. seeks to understand what's important to me. Mm -hmm. um, not, not to necessarily judge that, right? Um, there, later on down the line, there may be some discussions about healthy versus unhealthy or, uh, you know, or, or, or more maybe even a deeper moral kind of uh, examination of conscience. But, but to really understand what is valuable to that person, um, I think is really important as a therapist and certainly my experience as a therapy patient is that that's communicated to me. So it's not just somebody who's listening. Obviously, people can listen, mm -hmm. but but they're active in really um, um, understanding and even maybe teasing out a bit what I value. Mm -hmm. You know, um, even even if even if I think that it's for some reason other people don't agree with that, or or I think it's super important and other people don't, or it's important to me, and maybe because for that it's silly that I think such things are important, or whatever the case may be that all those judgments are set aside. Mm -hmm. And really uh, th those values are appreciated and examined. And then as we go forward, uh, processed more towards a better understanding and growth. Okay. So I asked you what the ideal therapist looks like. What's the most challenging aspect of being an LMFT? And it might be the same that you just said, but if it is, can you think of anything else that is challenging as an LMFT? Um, you know, I, I would say that for me, from my experience, uh, I'll, I'll talk about therapy first. Um, working with families, uh, and I'm not talking about exclusively couples. Couples work is family work, for sure. Um, but larger families, um, and certainly when I work with young people, adolescents and, um, and young adults who are uh, who, uh, where it's appropriate to work with their parents and, and other mm -hmm. family members, um, is it, 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 I think presents unique challenges, partly because the more people you bring into a family process, the more you have different opinions, different ideas. And all of those have to be, as I mentioned before, um, uh, taken into account and respected and so forth. But how you kind of come to some sort of understanding, if not agreement, because uh, you can't get everybody to agree all the time, right? Uh, mm -hmm. That wouldn't be a family. <laughs> if you got everybody to agree, that'd be kind of weird. Um, but, you know, uh, how do you get to really under, uh, a mutual sense of understanding and, and a commitment towards working together, I think uh, is, is very often a complicated and has its different challenges along the way. Uh, aside from that, I, I really think... Um, and I, and I would say this is probably true with just every anybody in healthcare, particularly private practice, mm -hmm. is that the business aspect of doing therapy is challenging. Mm -hmm. Managing a practice um, and uh, and doing uh, everything it takes to to make it uh, viable mm -hmm. financially uh, is not something you learn in graduate school. You hear about it, but uh, you know it uh, it's something that. Uh, uh, that that uh, many people like myself have to kind of learn along the way, and there's some hard knocks along the way as yep. far as that goes. Yeah, yeah, you're not alone. Other guests have said you either are forced to learn how to do it, how to manage that practice, or you just find somebody who can do that. Um, and and that is part of the aspect that you don't really think about. Oh, I'm so gung ho. I want to be a practitioner. I want to be in there. I want to be a counselor. I'm an LMFT. Whatever. Uh, but then you forget about the aspect of the business side of that uh, endeavor. So uh, tell us something unique about yourself. Um, well, I don't know how unique, <laughs> but uh, I do enjoy 
uh, and have enjoyed in my life uh, other activities that I think kind of in some way contribute to my professional life as well. Um, I enjoy music. I enjoy being a part of music. Um, I've sang in choirs for years and played guitar and dabbled in music composition. Uh, um, I enjoy outdoors uh, and, and a little bit in a great state for that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I love hiking and skiing and uh, water sports uh, when I can. Um, so uh, I, I think it's, it's certainly important for a healthy life, um, but it's really necessary, particularly when you're in a profession where you're helping people or trying mm -hmm. to. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and you need to achieve that balance um, and pursue uh, you know, your, your own uh, well-being. And uh, I've been very blessed to be um, married uh, for the same woman for 32 years and have two adult children who I really love and admire. And, um, and, and that really helps to round my life. So I don't know if that's unique. Uh, but, uh, but those are the things that, that, that really keep me going. All of those combined make it unique to you. So yeah, thank you. Uh, and a couple other fun questions at the end here that I'll ask, but I wanted to ask one other one. Is there anything else that you wish you had known about psychology ahead of time before choosing this career path? Anything that I would have known about psychology that I didn't. Correct. Um, yeah, um, it's, I kind of had the sense that psychology um, is, a, is a pretty varied kind of field when you start or, uh, or an area of study that can be really applied to other areas. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't aware of, uh, of how useful it could be in your own personal life. <laughs> And uh, so maybe that's one piece of it too, that the, the journey in understanding human behavior seems to be something that's taking in place around you. But what really is going on is what's inside of you. Mm -hmm. And I think how um, in, in studying and working with people, it really kind of brings to light um, one's own personal journey, one's own conflicts, um, and the kinds of things that I think ultimately we have to address within ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, 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 the idea of transference and counter-transference, for example, I mean, it's kind of an, um, an obvious example of how that can be pervasive in therapy and requires constant examination. Mm -hmm. um, but like you mentioned, like for me, what, what's an ideal therapist? Well, I can tell you I've been a therapy patient because I think every therapist should be at one time or another, or maybe different points throughout his or her lifespan. Mm -hmm. um, so um, that was something that I kind of came to understand on their side. And, and I would just say, you know, for, for your audience, uh, you know, expect your own sort of journey along the way. And I don't know how much you can be really prepared for it, other than be prepared to be surprised what you learn. Very good advice. I ask all of my guests this question. What is your favorite term, principle, or theory, and why? Um, I, you know, I've always gravitated towards the, the psychodynamic, psychoanalytic sort of area. Um, and in and Cal State Fullerton, um, uh, like I said, we had professors with different um, um, uh, presentations and points of view, which I, and I think that kind of diverse unless you're going for like a PhD in psychoanalysis, right? Or something very specific like that. Most of the programs, certainly at a master's level, I think do best when they provide a diverse kind of set of, of, of theories. Uh, and then you just sort of wind up gravitating to whatever I think feels right for you. Um, that's, what, that's what's felt right for me. Um, and at Cal State Fullerton in particular, at that time, there was a lot of emphasis on object relations theory. Mm -hmm. which, which I kind of pick up, picked up and ran with it, but then kind of looked at some of the other sort of Neo-Freudian and um, Jungian and other kinds of, um, of uh, points of view uh, with regard to that whole psychoanalytic, but 
kind of now I kind of talk about it as psychodynamic and existential. And, and that's that's the point of view that I typically work within. And, and I think it's important to understand other um, theories and techniques that kind of come out that, uh, and, and to be a little bit open and flexible to the kinds of things that you think in the moment may be really useful mm -hmm. as it presents itself in, in, uh, in, in therapy when you're working at it. But I'd like to conceptualize people in terms of their, for example, their family of origin, their early experiences, and, and, and think kind of in terms of how um, in their, in their uh, whether it's because I work with adolescents, as I mentioned, but also in, through adult life, how people come to certain uh, conflicts within themselves or interpersonally in their, in their relationships at work, wherever they encounter people in situations which could actually, pardon the term, trigger um, you know, those unresolved conflicts from the past and how they may be reminiscent of things that are unresolved. Um, and, uh, and, and, and that certainly, I think, happens in trauma uh, mm -hmm. too, in, in a big way. But to, to sort of be aware of that, to be able to help person to deal with crisis, but then also to look deeper into that in terms of how um, perhaps earlier conflicts and issues and unresolved issues in their life um, uh, now are kind of presented or represented in some way, mm -hmm. uh, how we can kind of work with that and, and heal that part of that person's um, trauma or, uh, or unresolved issues in some way that, that gives them, you know, more peace, more joy, and, and, and more um, of what they're looking for in their life goals. Okay. Do you have any other advice for those interested in the field of psychology? Um, I, I th depending on where you're at, uh, I think if you're entering into college, um, certainly if you go to a four-year university or if you go two years for a junior college, community college, and then, um, but you still want to pursue that degree, um, uh, be open to different things. And you might want to be a therapist or you might want to be a teacher or researcher or make, go even somewhere outside of psychology, if you will, um, and just feel like it's a good basis um, for any other field of study. Uh, I would just say be open. That's a time for discovery. It's, it's a, dis a discovery of the field, but it's also self-discovery. Mm -hmm. And then if you're considering graduate school, do take some time to do some work uh, in the field and have some of those experiences. Certainly graduate schools are typically looking for something, right? Some, uh, not like a great experience because it's pretty limited coming from a bachelor's point of view. Mm -hmm. But something that that uh, uh, creates a sense of passion, mm -hmm. something that says, you know, I don't know everything about this, but but my experiences and what I've learned so far is driving me. You're going to really love what you do um, because you're going to be doing a lot of it, mm -hmm. and some of it's really tedious <laughs> and really hard. Find what you love about psychology, and then use that as your guide towards perhaps a more specific field of study or, or a career path. Thank you for sharing. One other fun question that I kind of uh, round out at the end of the uh, uh, interview or discussion here is, if you had the time and money to complete one project or go on one trip, what would you do? Well, um... I am uh, my wonderful wife and I, and possibly one or both kids uh, are planning to go to Croatia and, oh. and maybe a couple other European stops along the way next year, hopefully. Okay. Um, we'll see, <laughs> <laughs> we're planning it. And uh, one of the reasons why that's important to me is that's where my grandparents are from. So oh, okay. um, it's the land of my ancestors. Um, so I'm, that's, that's something that, I hope to do. So that's one. Well, I hope you guys can fit it in and make it work. Uh, I know that I traveled around Europe and, and it's always fun to get outside of the United States. And uh, I always tell people, and I, I was a teacher, as you know, for some time, and I would tell a lot of my students and friends, try to travel if at all possible, because it opens up your eyes uh, so much more so than just staying in your hometown or staying in the United States. So I hope so you guys can make that I mean, work. Just, yeah. yeah, it's in... You know, it's great to obviously to go to places and being, we Americans, I maybe don't, 
understand how old things can be, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and right. until you go someplace where there's a building that's a thousand years old or whatever, right. um, you, you know, there, there's much to be appreciated there. But just to meet people and to interact with people, and um, it, it's it, it is, I think, a real profound uh, lesson in broadening our perspective of humanity. So I'm, I'm sure we will go. I'm sure we'll be there. Good. Good. Is there anything else that you would like to discuss or bring up on this podcast? I really appreciate your invitation, Brad, and the opportunity to talk about my my own journey. And I hope that uh, you know it helps uh, your audience, members of your audience, also in some way benefit from that. Um, you know, it's it's been a while, so it was really interesting to kind of take that walk back in memory lane. You know, I mean, uh, and and kind of revisit those experiences and what they meant to me then and. And, you know, and how they kind of brought me to where I am today. So I appreciate that very much. Well, thank you. You're very much welcome. I appreciate your time and willingness to share your thoughts and your experiences and and your story and advice with us as well. So, Michael, thanks again for your time. Thanks so much, Brad. Thanks for listening to the Masters in Psychology podcast. If you want to learn more about our guest or listen to other podcasts, you can visit our website, mastersinpsychology.com, where you can search through all of the schools in the United States that offer advanced degrees in psychology. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like, follow, or share.